This is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I'm your long-suffering host, Dante Stack, and today we're on question 72. Who or what is the Antichrist? You can thank listener Rebecca for this question. Uh, She wrote me a nice message the other day and asked me about, you know, this question. What does the Bible say about the Antichrist? And the other major reason why we're doing this question today is... uh, I got a problem with context right now. As I've mentioned before, my favorite, all-time favorite podcaster is Dan Carlin. He does two podcasts. One is called Hardcore History, and it's a history podcast. The other is called Common Sense, and it's a political podcast. But Hardcore History, the first episode, I don't know, back in 2009 or 2008, something like that, was 15 minutes long. His most recent episode was six hours long. And in a recent interview, he said, I'm just addicted to context. So I keep feeling whenever I need to tell a story, I need to fill in more and more context to the point where, you know, you're going hundreds of years before the actual story you want to tell to set up the story. Oftentimes when I'm looking at questions in the Bible, that's how I feel like, A, there's so much context that I need to explain to you, the listener, especially if you come from a non-Bible-thumping background, and then B, there's so much context also that I need to ingest and research and get to. All this makes for an overwhelming sense of, ah, (laughs) what did I sign up for when I decided to do this podcast? Thankfully, there's a light at the end of the tunnel here. I also do two podcasts, but my other podcast, Solve the World, is coming to an end in a few weeks, so I foresee there being more time in my schedule to delve into some of these deeper questions that take more research and more time. Hopefully, that hope will become a reality and I can spend more time on these questions that take more context and will probably be multiple parts and yada yada yada. But anyway, believe it or not, who or what is the Antichrist is actually a pretty simple question. So let's do it, shall we? Here we go. So I had a really cool 7th grade teacher, Miss Noble, and her approach to history was always to focus on the blood and guts aspect. So I think every, like, section of history we covered in 7th grade in California, we cover world history, uh, we would always have a blood and guts essay or, or portfolio we'd have to put together about it. And it was... Super cool, especially for us male prepubescent to pubescent boys in the class. I have fond memories of doing a report on Ivan the Terrible and his various torture techniques. Anywho, in that class one day, we were going over World War II and the Holocaust. And I have this distinct memory of this one classmate who I didn't know that well, but I, for whatever reason, remember his name was Paul. Paul raising his hand and asking Miss Noble, Is Hitler the third Antichrist? This was quite confusing to both me and the teacher. The teacher didn't know. Miss Noble didn't know what to do with that question, if I remember correctly. Didn't answer or just moved along. But I remember being like, hey, I was raised in the church. There's multiple antichrists? There's three that you can count? (laughs) I think I probably asked my parents about that, and they had no idea. And the question was left on the table for years and years and years. Until a couple of days ago when I decided to do this question, and I thought, I should look that up. And sure enough, well, Paul got his facts a little wrong, but Nostradamus wrote about multiple antichrists. The first one, he called Napoleon Roy. The second one, he called Hister. And the third one, he called Magus, or Magus, according to the weird quatrains of, you know, the prophet, seer, conman, whatever you want to call him, Nostradamus. 
So Paul clearly was wrong. Hister is obviously Hitler. Um, Napoleon Roy, you know, believers in Nostradamus think was Napoleon Bonaparte. And I'll share a BuzzFeed link to y'all in uh, my show notes because it's hilarious. Uh, that there's a conspiracy theory that Donald Trump is the third Antichrist, according to Nostradamus, that he is Magus. Um, they have to go through some interesting uh, linguistic mechanics to make Trump equal the name Magus, but sure enough, they do it. <laughs> Anywho, so when approaching this question, who or what is the Antichrist, first thing you got to do is do the blink test. Okay, you blink and you answer the question just based on what you've been fed all your years, whether that's in the church or not. For me, the blink test is simple. The Antichrist is the predicted, prophesied, end times antithesis to Jesus Christ. He is a human being that will be indwelt by Satan to perform miracles or good works or whatever to cause the people of the earth to put their faith in him. He's, as we say in Solve the World, the numbered man, 666, uh, the beast of Revelation. You know, he's the antagonist of the book series Left Behind. So, if we're making a book out of the history of Christianity, if we're making a book out of the history of the world according to Christian doctrine, the Antichrist is maybe villain number two? Like, he's the puppet of Satan. Done and done. There we go. Easy peasy. Antichrist is a vital part, clearly, of Christian theology. He plays an integral role. That's what the blink test tells me. Side note here, and I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, it's always been my pet theory that if the Antichrist were to come down, and if he was to play this role of a great mass deceiver, it totally makes sense to me that he would be an alien. Because, check it out. Some dude comes up, and he's the next president of the United States, or he's the next pope. People are going to hate him, no matter what, because they're going to have a psychological bent because of political party or because of cultural background to already hate him. But if he's an alien and he comes down in a spaceship and he's like, look, guys, I got spaceship powers. I can go faster than the speed of light. My race of people is way older than your race of people. And check it out. Yahweh's not real. Bam. That would be a real temptation. That would be something I know I would really struggle with. Because, you know, rationally, I'd be like, all right, you're an alien. You can do way more than us. Maybe I should listen to you. Anywho, now getting past the blink test and actually looking at what the Bible says about this Antichrist character, I was totally befuddled. I had no idea how few references there actually are to this Antichrist character. This actual word, Antichrist, in Greek, only comes up four times in all the Bible. All thousand plus pages of the Bible, this integral character, the name only comes up five times in four separate little passages. And you're like, yeah, all right, whatever, Dante, but it's in the important books, right? It's in Revelation. It's in Jesus's predictions of the end times. It's probably in Daniel. No, no, and no. The word Antichrist doesn't show up anywhere in the Gospels. It doesn't show up in any of the Apostle Paul's writings to the church. It doesn't show up in 
the prophetic book of Daniel in the Old Testament. It doesn't obviously show up in Genesis. It doesn't show up in Revelation. Yeah, the big long book at the end of our Bibles that supposedly talks about the end of days, where supposedly the Antichrist is going to play a major part, he's not in there. At least not as the word Antichrist. He only shows up in the letters of John, in 1 John and 2 John. That blew me away. I had no idea. So, it stands to reason then, if we're going to decipher who or what the Antichrist is, we should start with what John actually says about him. So let's just read this thing. So the first passage the word Antichrist is ever used in the entire Bible is here in 1 John chapter 2, and the word comes up twice in verse 18. So let's start there. I'm, of course, reading from my ESV translation. John says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, okay, he's coming, so far so good, so now many Antichrists have come. Hmm, that's different. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Here comes the next verse with the word Antichrist. Verse 22, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. All right, so that was three instances of the word Antichrist used. Two verses, verse 18 and verse 22 of chapter 2 of 1 John. John uses the word Antichrist once more in this letter in chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, but the word is used in verse 3. But I'll read 1 through 6 for context. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. All right, so here we get a little different twist on the term Antichrist, because here John says the spirit of Antichrist. But he also says the spirit of God, the spirit of truth, and the spirit of error. So the word spirit's kind of being thrown around a lot here. I tend to take this specific passage as spirit meaning like the essence of, the theme of, the product of error, the product of God, the product of the Antichrist. All right, the last verse in all the Bible that uses the word Antichrist is in John's second letter, short little letter. I'm going to read verses 4 through 7. It's a short little letter. There's only one chapter. So just verses 4 through 7 of 2 John. Here we go. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, 
He's obviously speaking to a specific person. Not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. All right. Let's blink test again, now knowing that these are the only references to the Antichrist in all of the Bible. I blink test this, and I get the idea, plainly, that the Antichrist isn't a specific prophetic person, but rather that it's more an idea, it's more being the opposite of a Christian. Being a wolf in sheep's clothing equals being an Antichrist, right? Christ means Messiah, we know the Messiah to be Jesus. So, to be an antichrist isn't to be a specific person, but it's to be someone who is against the Messiah, someone who is against Jesus. I'll speak a little more on this later, but I think it, it is worth mentioning here that, in general, that blink test is also not the accepted nomenclature of the evangelical Christian landscape. You know, when I want to get my mainstream Christian thinker thoughts on any given subject, I usually go one of two places. I go to gotquestions.org, which I incessantly reference on this podcast and incessantly abhor, and I go to John Piper. Now, Piper, I don't always agree with him, but I do acknowledge he is a godly man, and I don't think he is trying to deceive anyone or anything like that. He is a strict Calvinist, so I find myself pushing against his grain often, but he's a prominent leader in the Christian American evangelical community. So he wrote an article on the Antichrist, the title of the article being, The Antichrist is Here and Not Yet Here. So I'll also have a link to his DesiringGod.org article online if you wish to read it. But essentially, without making a strong case, I believe, re having read the article, I didn't see how he made his conclusion, but essentially he's saying Antichrist can be a term, as John applies it, to be anyone who is against Christendom. So in that way, the Antichrist has always been here. There have always been Antichrists. But Piper goes on to say, there is also a specific Antichrist, that being the one who Satan will bolster up to be the physical incarnation of Satan on earth, the physical man-like satanic figure. Now again, I don't know how he gets there, because I'm reading this, I just read to you all the John passages of the use of Antichrist, and one specific statement, like, jumps out at me, and that's that John defined for us what Antichrist means. He said it straight out. I'll read it again. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. To me, I read that as dictionary definition of Antichrist. Antichrist, colon, he who denies the Father and the Son. So then, with that in mind, I think the next question to ask ourselves is, why does John use this specific language? Why is John coining the phrase Antichrist? Right? If that phrase doesn't come from anybody else, not Paul, not Jesus, not anyone, why did it come into John's mind to use that phrase? 
or that word. I have four theories or four points that I think are reasonable, and these are all contextually based, so forgive me for a second. One, point one, is you gotta remember the landscape that John's writing these letters. This is first century church, right? This is the beginning of the persecution of Christianity. So I don't exactly know the timeline of First John. I don't know if this is under Nero yet or not. But certainly once we get to Nero, we have a mass persecution of Christianity under Roman rule. You know, this is the time period of Christians being led into the arena and then eaten by lions in front of onlooking crowds. By the way, there's an interesting cut scene from the movie Gladiator where this is depicted. Kind of sad that it was cut from the final film, but you can watch it on DVDs of Gladiator, the 2000, you know, Russell Crowe, awesome, epic, great movie. Under the deleted scenes, there's a deleted scene where, you know, it's just Russell Crowe or whatever watching right before, I guess, he goes out to do his Gladiator stuff, fight people. Before that, the preamble to that is a bunch of Christians being led out into the arena. And in the film, they're kind of just huddling to each other, holding on to each other, praying as these ravenous lions come out into the arena and eat them. Right? There's a reason that the Christians hid in catacombs for 300 years. They were persecuted mightily. There's a reason that 11 of the 12 disciples of Christ, 11 of the 12 people that walked with Jesus, were murdered and martyred. Murdered and martyred. Huh, those words are very similar. And the only one that survived, John himself, was cast away, put in seclusion on the island of Patmos. So it didn't go well for anyone who followed Jesus. They were all persecuted. Paul ends up being martyred. Essentially, if you're a first century Christian, also a second century Christian, you're going to be killed and it's going to be brutal. And more often than not, you're going to be tortured. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs and it's full of people who were martyred and tortured for believing in Jesus Christ, for saying there is no God but one, and his name is Jesus. When you live in a polytheistic society, worse than that, a polytheistic society that says Caesar is God, you're going to suffer consequences. So the horrible reality here in the first century church is that many Christians apostatized. Many Christians were either A, actually fakers, and were embedding themselves within these Christian communities for the sake of the Roman Empire because they're being paid off or whatever. So they literally were wolves in sheep's clothing, anti-Jesus, anti-Christ. Or they were weak individuals who didn't serve as good examples to their brothers and sisters because they buckled under pressure. And John doesn't have good words to say about that. Uh, a friend of mine, John Martindale, he hosted the episode about the she-bears killing all the all the people. He told me that certain historians believe that three-fourths of the Christian church in the first and second centuries apostatized. Three-fourths? That's a lot of people. So John's writing about this, about living out truth, about being in the spirit of Christ and the spirit of truth and not the spirit of error under this umbrella of harsh persecution and the reality that many people are buckling under that persecution. All right. The second reason that I think John may have used this word antichrist is because in the early church, again, first, second, third centuries, forming theology was paramount to Christendom. Paul, again and again, we see, you know, scoffing at people for wrong orthopraxy, wrong orthodoxy, defining what it means to be a Christian is of utmost importance. 
we can see from a lot of scholarship out there, Bart Ehrman is one of the foremost thinkers in this regard, even though he's not a believer anymore, or at least not a believer in the conventional sense. Um, there were tons of people that believed in a type of Jesus, but wouldn't be believers in the conventional sense that 21st century Christians see believers to be, right? They took Jesus and they said, oh, Jesus means this. And it's something completely different than what the writings of Paul say, completely different than what John believed, completely different than what James was preaching. So all these first century leaders, Peter included, are railing against heresy. And they, they have strong language for that. We see in Revelation, when John says, these are the words of Jesus to the seven churches, Jesus is speaking against heresy. So this is very important. Jesus says in Revelation, this is Satan in the synagogue. This is Satan invading the church when there is heresy among you. So maybe that's a reason to invoke this word antichrist. It's anti the doctrine of Jesus. Third reason that you would invoke the word antichrist is because you already have an embodiment of this idea. Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. We've talked about this before. He's the biggest figure of Judaism, of Christianity, that is nowhere actually in the text. But he's often, I believe, underlying the narrative. Because in whatever, 100 BC, he's the Greek dude that marches into Jerusalem, marches into the temple, and tells the Jews, slaughter pigs here in the temple and worship me. I will sit on the Holy of Holies. And he does. Pretty soon after, interestingly, intriguingly, horribly, maybe, I guess depending on your interpretation, we see another version of Antiochus Epiphanes. You know, again, 100 years before Christ is when Antiochus rode into Jerusalem and besieged the temple and looted it. We see another version of this in later Emperor Titus. In, I think it's Rome, there's a monument to Titus that shows Titus's people going into the temple and looting it and taking out all the fine jewelry and all the beautiful gold things of the temple and walking them out of the temple and taking them to Rome because Titus demanded it. Titus, in a way, was the Antiochus Epiphanes of the A.D. era, of the Common Era, of the C.E. era. The later Emperor Vespasian also was the general at the time that marched into Jerusalem. So there's a lot of chaos that's about to befall the temple and Jerusalem and in some ways recreate what Antiochus Epiphanes did. In all these embodiments, if you will, or these instances of raiding and looting the temple, in each case, Antiochus Epiphanes and Titus himself, it's a whole men saying, look Jews, I am God. I am your God now. So in a very real sense, they are being antichrists. They're being the embodiment of someone who denies the Father and the Son, as John says in his letter. They are being true antichrists. The last reason I think John uses this language is, I think, because he is knowledgeable and because he was there when Jesus himself prophesied about the future. Now, this prophecy is most lovingly remembered in Matthew chapter 24. I'm just going to read at the very beginning of Matthew 24, 4. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. Verse 5. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. He goes on to speak of wars and rumors of wars and tribulations. But right there, that phrase, 
For many will come and say, I am the Christ, and lead many astray. I think that's a prophecy that John is speaking to when he talks about an antichrist or antichrists. People that come claiming to be the Messiah. People that will come and claim to be the Christ. You know, again, Christ just means Messiah redeemer of the people. I had a thought that this would be an interesting point at which to look at a historical list of all the post-Jesus Jewish people that claim to be the Messiah to the Jews. Because there's quite a number. And again, I'll put in the show notes the link to the Wikipedia page. There's so many that there's a Wikipedia page of later Jewish messiahs, supposed. But I was reading through that list, and more or less they all talk about political annexation, of the Jewish people, political freedom for the Jewish people, and they all invoke Moses going back to the promised land, retaking Israel, the land Israel, and they almost all invoke Elijah again. Remember, there's the prophecy that Elijah will return before the Messiah comes. That's in Jeremiah, I believe. So we could go through all that, but I stumbled upon this page that I thought was more interesting that I want to read from. It's from Moment Magazine, which I've never heard of. Uh, But this specific article is, I guess, Ask the Rabbis. So it's asking various rabbis, rabbis from a whole bunch of different denominations of Judaism, um, asking them the question, are Jews still expecting Messiah? So this article goes and it asks a rabbi from the independent movement of Judaism, from the humanist movement, from the, quote, renewal synagogue, from the Reconstructionist congregation, from the Union for Reform Judaism, uh, from conservative Judaism, from modern Orthodox Judaism, from Sephardi Judaism, from Chabad Judaism, and lastly, from ultra-Orthodox Judaism. And it was quite revealing reading through all these. And again, I'll post this in show notes, and you should read it because it's fascinating. But Nine out of ten of these rabbis, I don't know if it's actually nine out of ten, but the vast majority of these rabbis aren't actually waiting for a physical messiah, much in the way that we may or may not be waiting for a physical antichrist, as our blink test first told us to await it, as Left Behind tells us to await the evil antichrist, which, by the way, Revelation, when it refers to that character that we tend to associate with Antichrist. It refers to that character as the beast or the dragon. That's the language it uses, never the Antichrist language. Anyway, again, most of these rabbis aren't waiting for a Messiah, which I found deeply sad, right? Doesn't that mean that they're kind of denying the faith, the faith of their forefathers? Surely David was waiting for a Messiah. Surely Elijah was waiting for a Messiah. Jeremiah certainly was waiting for a Messiah, a specific Messiah. But after, you know, 2,500 years, so many of these rabbis have stopped looking. And obviously, all these rabbis are living in the modern world. And I think all these rabbis that were quoted in this article are North American rabbis, so none from Israel, I believe. But anyway, because it's fascinating and because it has echoes of the Piper article that speaks of the Antichrist being here but not yet, I wanted to read this response to Are You Expecting the Messiah from the modern Orthodox Rabbi Yeats Greenberg from Rivendale, New York. And I quote his response. By continuing to live as Jews, 
all Jews are stating that the Messiah has not yet arrived. Jewry pledged at Mount Sinai and elsewhere that as long as the world is not totally redeemed, we will go on with our testimony as Jews. As long as there is poverty, hunger, oppression, and war, the world is still not perfected. We maintain this against the Christian claim that the Messiah has arrived and against secular messianic redemptive movements, Nazism, Communism, Socialism, that claim that they have brought the true final perfection. This continuing testimony of, quote, not yet, is why would-be world redeemers have hated and persecuted Jews. After great catastrophes, many Jews lifted their level of expectation because of the need to rebalance the world toward the victory of the good. In this post-Shoah generation, some Lubavitchers, I honestly don't know what a Lubavitcher is, and followers of Rav Abraham Cook were convinced that the Messiah had arrived, or was almost here. Unfortunately, all celebrations have been premature. And here's the interesting part. It would appear that secular Jews have renounced belief in the Messiah, but I believe that the choice to continue living as a Jew is the statement, I still believe the world will be perfected, and by implication, quote, I will work to bring the Messiah, end quote. There's so much in there that I can confide in. There's so much in there that I see eye to eye with. There's so much in there that I want to nod my head to and say, Yes, I'm with you, Rabbi. We're still waiting. We're groaning for the world to be made new. And I think that's part of the missing recipe here to this question of who or what is the Antichrist and why in modern Christianity there's often such an emphasis on this character or why he's such a villain in the forefront of the Left Behind series, why we need there to be villain number one, because we realize implicitly, internally, that we're worshiping a God who has already come and already died and has already pretty much done his work here on earth, and yet here we are, we're still dying, and we're watching the world still being corrupted day in, day out. We see ourselves being corrupted. I sin on a daily basis. So much in the world is wrong and getting wronger. It's not getting better. So I can understand why someone would look at the world, especially a Jewish person, would look at the world and say, clearly the Messiah hasn't come back. The world is broken. It's not better yet. How can you... Look at Jesus and say, I make all things new. Where's the newness? I get that. And then I can see how there's a need in our Christian context, our new community, to say, there's some cognitive dissonance here. Jesus has come, but the world's still broken. Why? Well, there must be an antagonist. There must be someone who's working against God. That must be why the world's not perfect yet, because there's some final battle here to come. And yet, we look at scripture, we look at the four verses that use the word antichrist, the five times the word antichrist is spoken, and none of it seems to portray this endgame battle royale between the unholy trinity of the antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan versus the true holy trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost at Armageddon. None of it seems to point to that. It seems to simply point to persecution and people who claim to know the truth but deny it with their lips, or people that claim to say, I'm making all things better, and they're not. So, who or what is the Antichrist? John tells us. 
It's anyone who denies the Father and Son. End. Question over. Right? Everything else is just coming out of this inner yearning to want an endgame. To want there to be a reason for why Jesus hasn't made all things better yet. Okay, but, dun-dun-dun, this is where we have the old M. Night Shyamalan twist at the end. Dun-dun-dun, you didn't think I was really going to leave you right there, right? We're not just blowing smoke up left-behinders' buttockses. No, there's a reason for all that. It's a super weird reason, and it comes out of Paul's own mouth. I'm going to read 2 Thessalonians. Paul's second letter to the Thessalonian church starts out simply enough. 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the churches of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how, like, every Pauline letter starts. But here we go. It gets weird really quickly. Chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction, the son of destruction, the son of destruction, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Right? This is clearly a prophecy, and it's clearly, once again, invoking the image of Antiochus Epiphanes walking into the temple, except this time, it seems to be a foreshadow. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Paul talks a lot about the mystery of the gospel. Here he's invoking the mystery of lawlessness, the mystery of sin. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Okay, that's all weird, but again, we could attribute that to Titus, right? The coming Caesar that's going to raid the temple. The letters to the Thessalonians, I think, are generally considered to be early in Paul's ministry. So, so far, we could just attribute it to that. This doesn't have to be the Antichrist, right? Oh, but, drop the base. Verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned, who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That is crazy. I don't know what to do with that whole God-deceiving-people business. Can't even touch that with a 30-foot pole. But whatever Paul's talking about here, there's no way that has been fulfilled, right? False signs and wonders, and Jesus is going to destroy him with the breath out of his mouth? That is clearly the same language that John is using in the book of Revelation. That is clearly stuff that hasn't happened yet, and this man of lawlessness sounds like, whether or not we use the word antichrist, that sounds like the big A antichrist. So who or what is the antichrist? Is he the man of lawlessness? Probably? I don't know that's the point of this show we don't know
is Dante Stack signing out. Peace be the journey.